Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and this is the Sunday Roundup. The newspapers were heavily focused today on the allegations that a BBC presenter had paid a 17-year-old for sexually explicit photos. The mother of the victim has claimed that the presenter in question stayed on air for weeks after the complaint was made. The Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves told Sophie Ridge that this scandal went beyond the BBC and that investigations into these matters needed to happen more efficiently. It's deeply concerning. The idea that you know, some presenters think that they act with impunity and they can get away with these sorts of things, it does call into question the, the, uh, the ethics, the investigations, how long these things take. And the BBC, but also other broadcasters, do need to get a grip because we seem to lurch from one scandal to another and more needs to be done. The timing is important, isn't it? Um, Because according to this woman, she she complained to the BBC in May, but the presenter in question then stayed on air for weeks after. I think that's the concerning thing, that someone makes a complaint, a very serious complaint, and then puts on the telly the next night and they're still there. And that's not good enough. That is not treating people, victims, with respect. And that's why there needs to be a a full investigation. But, look, I think this goes beyond the BBC. We had uh, stories, was it last month, about uh, Philip Schofield. And, you know, there may be more to come. Who knows? But the investigations, but also the standards, need to be reformed and looked at again. What do you mean by that, the standards need to be reformed and looked at again? Well, the investigations need to be much swifter. Uh, action needs to be taken quicker when there are serious complaints like this. But the standards at which uh, presenters operate just need to be much, much higher. No-one should be able to get away with this sort of uh, thing and think they can get away with it. And that's clearly what a lot of people seem to think today. Do you think, then, that because presenters are in the public eye, in some ways they're public figures, that they should be held to a different standard, then? I think if anybody did this in any job, whether they're a teacher, a doctor, a television presenter, a politician, it wouldn't be acceptable. But when serious allegations are made like this, I don't think it's right that those people stay in those jobs whilst those very serious investigations uh, go on. Do you think uh, that the individual should be named? We've seen other presenters having to come out to say that it's not them, for example. I'm not totally sure um, about that because you can get vexatious complaints. But that means there's a greater onus on doing these things quickly. They shouldn't drag on for months and uh, months. Uh, the BBC or whoever the, um, the employer is needs to quickly do these investigations and take the appropriate action. And I'm not convinced so far that that's happened in this case. Do you think there should be a police element to this as well? Um, if you look, for example, at the 1978 Protection for Children Act, it's an offence to make, distribute, possess or show any indecent images of anyone aged under 18. I think this is a question that the investigation needs to uh, get into, but obviously it's deeply concerning, the idea that this was happening when the young person was just 17 years old. Reeves said she was concerned that the US had agreed to supply Ukraine with cluster bombs. The bombs are banned under the Geneva Convention and the UK has stated that it will not join the US in providing Ukraine with them. Reeves said although it was important to arm Ukraine properly, weapons which can have a fatal impact years after the conflict should be avoided. Now, we know the US want to send cluster bombs to Ukraine. Is that something you support? 
We all agree that Ukraine needs to be properly armed to fight Russia and their illegal invasion. But I am concerned about the use of cluster bombs, and it's not just the UK who has these concerns. Other countries um, clearly do as well. Uh, and so I would like to find a way to properly arm Ukraine, but without using these weapons, which can have an impact not just on the battlefield at that time on, on, on that day, but for months and years afterwards. That is something that caused me deep concern and many other people as well. So while I support uh, President Biden's desire to ensure that Ukraine is fully armed to fight uh, Russia, I'm not convinced that these are the appropriate um, uh, uh, weapons. Sophie Ridge questioned the Financial Secretary to the Treasury, Victoria Atkins, on a graph showing that the UK had the third worst deficit out of the OECD countries. Ridge pointed out that the pandemic and the war in Ukraine had clearly affected every country and so weren't a satisfactory explanation for why the UK's economy was performing so badly. Atkins argued that developed countries like the UK were particularly exposed to international gas and food prices. We're talking about sound money under the Conservatives and I think we can have a little look now at a global comparison of the deficit and also debt levels. Uh, and you can see here how the UK uh, is doing. This is a chart from the OBR showing there's 42 other countries uh, around the world. We've got the third worst deficit. And when it comes to debt levels, we've got the fourth worst debt. Is this really sound money under the Conservatives? Uh, and this is precisely why we are having to make very difficult decisions, both at Autumn Statement and at Spring Budget, but also why the Prime Minister's number one focus is on uh, tackling inflation. I guess because my, as my we're question... trying to pay these back, you know, we are spending £120 billion a year on debt interest. I would much rather we were spending that money on the public services we all care about. But we have to drive down this debt, which we are determined to do in the medium and long term, which is why it's one of the Prime Minister's five priorities. I guess my question to is... To help with those, uh, those figures. You, know, you were talking a moment ago about COVID and about the war in Ukraine and how that's impacted the economy in the UK. Well, it's also impacted all these other 42 economies as well. Why are we doing so badly? Well, if you look, if, if, for example, if you look at, in, at rates of inflation, uh, developed economies around the world are facing uh, much higher inflation rates for all sorts of reasons. But we are particularly exposed, for example, on gas prices. We have, uh, most of us are on the grid. We're very exposed to international gas prices. And so that is why last autumn we announced the energy price guarantee, which has not only helped halve uh, energy bills around the country, it's also knocked two percentage points off inflation. Um, but we also uh, want to help with things such as food inflation. We know that um, we import 50% of our food. Uh, my farmers in Lincolnshire would wish that it was far lower than that. But because of that, we are much more susceptible to price rises in uh, the worldwide price of wheat, for example, which means that then comes through to our shelves on the supermarkets. And so as part of our work to tackle all of this, we're working with supermarkets, for example, to make sure that they're offering value ranges to try to help people, as you've described, who are finding times really tough at the moment. Laura Koonsberg asked Victoria Atkins if it was true that Conservatives hoping for tax cuts anytime soon should forget it. Atkins conceded that the priority had to be on dealing with high inflation and that recent government spending helping people through the pandemic and the cost of living crisis meant there was no opportunity to look at tax cuts in the short term. 
She also attacked Labour's £28 billion green plan, which they themselves have now postponed. Let's talk about tax then, which is your responsibility. Clearly, there's not much money to spend. We know that's the Treasury's thinking. Your boss, Jeremy Hunt, indicated very strongly that either voters or your colleagues on the Conservative backbench is hoping for tax cuts anytime soon should forget it. Yeah, and look, we, we are Conservatives. We absolutely fundamentally believe in lower taxes. I want people to be able to keep more of their hard-earned uh, earnings in their pockets and purses. But we are in a situation at the moment where, because we were able to support people so well during the pandemic, in thanks, I have to say, to the hard work of the uh, previous uh, 10 years of Conservative government, of which David was one, uh, because of the hard work that we had over that decade, we were able to support people through the pandemic. And you'll remember schemes such as furlough, we saved millions of jobs. But does that mean that people can forget about any tax cuts before the next election? So we have this money that we have rightly spent, and, and by the way, Labour wasn't arguing with us spending this money to support people and to support the NHS. We have also spent £94 billion on cost of living support, which is incredibly important. Has made so my question is, should people. people forget tax cuts before the next election? So we, uh, we, we want to be fiscally responsible, so both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have said that as, as soon as we can, we will uh, cut taxes, but there, we do have to be fiscally responsible about this, which is why we've had to make some very difficult decisions. But I'm asking about the, the timing of what that might mean, because your boss, Jeremy Hunt, seemed to indicate yesterday very clearly that essentially people could absolutely forget about the idea of any tax cuts in the autumn, and the implication being you might not be able to promise them before the election. So our priority, as Jeremy set out yesterday, has to be tackling inflation. That is the quickest way that we can help people make their wage packets go further. And so this is why the Prime Minister, who was talking about this, by the way, two years before anyone else, um, that's why he's made his number one priority out of his five priorities. And you've made and that point, all sorts but I'm asking you a to, different um, question. Should people view, listening this morning your colleagues on the back benches, people in government, should they hear from you and from your boss, Jeremy Hunt, that actually, you know what, things are so tough in the economy that tax cuts are simply off the agenda for the foreseeable future. So as, as Jeremy the Chancellor said yesterday, um, we are having to you know, tackle inflation. That has to be our priority. We do not have the headroom at the moment to, uh, in the, you know, to, to look at tax cuts, but as soon as we can, as soon as we have taken the measures that we are taking to reduce inflation, then we will be able to start having those but conversations. But would you say there's any uh, chance of that happening well, this autumn so now? I, you know, I'm, I'm minded of, reminded of the fact that in the autumn we introduced the energy price guarantee which not only help people immediately with their energy bills, it's also cut two percentage points off inflation. Uh, and when we talk about, as we have done, about the pressures on the jobs market because we have um, so many people in work, we unlocked through the spring budget all sorts of ways to help uh, get people back into the workforce, including the transformational childcare package. Uh, and, and we are also um, doing everything we can to keep people in the jobs uh, sector, which is why we made those pension changes. So that we are doing very, very practical things to try to improve the situation. But the only way we will do this is by being fiscally responsible and certainly not by borrowing £28 billion like Labour has suggested. OK. Reeves told Laura Koonsberg that home ownership under the Conservatives has been falling and that local authorities no longer have any obligation to build more housing. Koonsberg asked Reeves how Labour could guarantee to voters that more houses would be built if they were not planning on spending more taxpayers' money. 
Reeves claimed that it could be achieved purely through reforms to the planning system and that the current fall in house building was costing the UK £44 billion a year. If you become Chancellor, will you spend taxpayers' money on building houses? This isn't about spending taxpayers' money. This is about unblocking the planning system. It's about uh, um, offering some form of uh, guarantor for uh, people who are struggling to save a deposit but can afford the monthly mortgage repayments. This government have blown it when it comes to home ownership. Home ownership is now falling under a Conservative government and it is clear that it is only Labour now that can help people fulfil their dreams of owning their homes because it's only Labour that will get builders building again in a way that we need to build those homes for people. But there are 1.2 million people on social housing waiting lists right now. Now, if you're not going to spend taxpayers' money on getting houses built, how are the things you're talking about really going to make a difference to that? Well, if you look at home ownership levels, they were once as high under the last Labour government as 70%, 70% of people owning their own homes. That's fallen now to 64%. And indeed, that's not my question. People... My question is, if you're not going to spend taxpayers' money building houses, you've been really clear about that, how on earth can you guarantee to our viewers that there are going to be more homes to rent and more homes to buy? Because builders want to build, it's just the planning system uh, mitigates against that. The government, of course, got rid of the planning uh, targets, so local authorities now have no obligation, no targets to build uh, new homes. And as a result, those homes aren't getting built. And this has a real economic impact as well. If house building falls in the way that is now expected, that's a £44 billion hit to the UK economy every single year. And many businesses as well say that they struggle uh, to recruit people because people can't afford to live in the places where the jobs are being generated. But, but success so this is incredibly important. Everybody to knows it's important. This so that builders can build. Finally, the presidential envoy for climate, John Kerry, disagreed with Koonsberg's assertion that the numbers showed the world was moving in the wrong direction on climate change. He said that the growing trend of civil disobedience showed that people were captivated by the climate crisis, but that greater cooperation between the US and China was needed as the world's two biggest economies and emitters. The situation we are witnessing now is the demonstration that climate change is out of control. Out of control, according to the United Nations. Well, Secretary Kerry is with us this morning. Warm welcome to the studio. It's your job as climate envoy to persuade people they have to do more. But the numbers suggest it's not working. Well, I disagree with that. I think that all around the world, people are captivated by the crisis and, and deeply, deeply concerned about it. You just had a 66-year-old gentleman going out in the middle of the Wimbledon court and demonstrating and willing to be arrested. There is civil disobedience building in communities around the world. And I think if you listen to the scientists, which not enough people are, mm. the last week they have described as terrifying and as uncharted territory. When you see the risks of what is happening already with global ice melt, with challenges of fires, of uh, mudslides, of the heat, people dying from the level of heat, the quality of air, people are dying around the world, in the millions, by the way, about eight million people a year die from that. And, and it comes from one thing, this is not complicated. It is the way we have chosen to propel our vehicles, heat our homes, light our factories and businesses. It's, it's the provision of power, burning fossil fuel without capturing the emissions. We have two choices. You either capture the emissions or you don't create them in the first place. 
And that's the challenge that we face now. If you think, though, of what's happening in countries like China, where coal mine production is still going up, countries like India, countries who maybe sometimes talked a good game at big international gatherings like COP, the numbers in many cases are still going the wrong way. So why are. are you failing to persuade they people are to take the kind the of well, radical action? <laughs> persuading people. China, China is a country, a huge country. It's the largest emitter in the world. And we need China to cooperate, and we need to cooperate with China. People are sort of in this standoff, but we can't afford to be, which is why President Biden has just had the Treasury Secretary in China talking about economics, but who also talked about climate. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there will be other visits. And what we're trying to do is, is change the dynamic between our nations. We are the two largest economies in the world. Mm -hmm. We are the two largest emitters of greenhouse gas emissions. We need to work together in a cooperative way. That's all for this week. I'm Isabel Hardman, and this podcast was produced by Joe Bedell-Brill. Don't forget to subscribe to the Coffee House Shots podcast on the iTunes store. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to our daily evening blend email. It's a free roundup of all the political news each day, along with analysis and a diary on what to expect next. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.